Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to the Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down, you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today I have a phenomenal guest with me, Craig Mott. Craig Mott is a Japan-based author and photographer. His books include Kissa by Kissa, Koya Bound, and Art Space Tokyo. He's a McDowell, VCCA, and Rackdale Fellow. His writing and photography has appeared in Eater, The Atlantic, California Sunday Magazine, The New Yorker, and other publications. This is just a short blurb of who Craig Mott is. He is a freaking amazing guy. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It means a lot to me. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it just one of the biggest challenges I had with interviewing you is usually it's saying the opposite. It's like I had to like dig, dig and find some like interesting nuggets with you. It was like, damn, this guy has done so much cool things in such a short span. I'm like, where do I begin? And what I want to start off with is I had no idea that you were a stock geek since the age of 15. Like, how did that happen? So I grew up in this very blue collar town where basically there wasn't a lot of wealth. I grew up in with my mother and my grandparents. My dad was off, was elsewhere. And, you know, like tiny house, my grandfather worked at the airplane engine factory. And when he wasn't working there, he sold pens. There wasn't like this and people around me, no, there really wasn't, there wasn't this sense of wealth. And in high school, I remember kind of the stock market uh, appearing on the radar. And I was sort of a science geek and, you know, math geek. And I just thought, Oh, this is interesting. Not only is it interesting, but it's like, you know, Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Like everyone was like, you know, it's like, you got to have a stockbroker and buy stock. I was like, all right, there's literally no one in my near circle that has even, you know, has ever talked to a broker in their life, let alone bought a stock. You know, my grandparents were so afraid of things like the stock market. They just savings accounts. And this is back, you know, when a savings account could produce real returns. I mean, they had genuine interest rates kind of sitting behind them. Yeah. When I was 15, there was like kind of a stock broker club thing in high school and we got like a thousand fake dollars and invested in some stocks and I was just kind of captivated by it. It was just really crazy to me that you could buy pieces of companies, giant companies like GE or, you know, I mean, that was just amazing to me. And so, yeah, I was lucky in that sense to kind of get exposed to that. And so then, you know, that was part of my MO was whenever I got any money couple hundred bucks for your birthday or whatever. Like I just immediately was like, how can I invest this? That was my, I didn't, I didn't think about buying stuff. I was always just like, all right, I kind of had this intuitive sense that to get out of whatever sort of, whatever it was that was, I guess, defining the area I grew up in, in order to get out of there, there was going to, I was going to need some strategies. And I kind of intuited that perhaps stocks were one of the, you know, one of the exit tools to kind of elevate myself 
you know, outside of that town. To a better life, I would say. To, well, to just a different place. You know, I mean, I, I definitely had this impulse from when I was young to get out, you know, to travel, to see the world, to kind of understand things a little more. I think part of that comes from being adopted and you just have this in, in kind of implicit sense of the quote unquote, like true story of who you are is unknown. And so, you know, there's this weird psychology there with adoption where, um, you know, especially if you don't obviously know your birth parents, that there's like, oh, okay, there's this whole other story outside of what I know. And so that kind of pulls you in different directions. And what was this town where you were raised? Near Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, wow. So it's just funny because you don't think of Connecticut as like having blue collar anything. But there's a, you know, obviously, you know, towards New York City, uh, you know, in the country, it's just all Maserati's yachts and, you know, people smoking golden pipes. <laughs> but, um, and I didn't know that because my, you know, my town was not that. And I went to university and I met other people from Connecticut and I was like, who are uh, yeah. oh, this is what this is what Connecticut people look like, you know, from the outside. And everyone I met at university, they're like, Where did you come from? Yeah. Like, you know, Connecticut. And they're like, Ooh, did you come on your you know, a helicopter? <laughs> no, did not come on the helicopter. So there are kind of amazing it was in my town was also extremely diverse. You know, one of these things you when growing up you don't really know how to value. But, you know, my best friends in high school were Vietnamese and Indian. And just, you know, I, I think about the the mix of people that I interacted with and the kind of the mix of not only just races, but different, you know, varying life experiences all within this kind of blue collarish background. It was super rich. It was crazy. I mean, I, I'm very grateful for that experience. I grew up for most of my life in Ahmedabad, Gujarat in India. And Ahmedabad basically was the birthplace of Mahatma Gandhi and, you know, where he has his um, shelter too. So I didn't get much exposure, I would say, until I want to say maybe 2010 or 11 when I started traveling outside of India, like really and spending time with like different cultures and different races. And and then it was like, oh man, like this is a very different way of thinking. And have you tried to like keep in touch with any of those, your friends, Vietnamese and Indian friends from high school or university? Not a ton. I haven't been very good. I mean, there's sort of like tenuous connections on Facebook, you know, but no one... I don't use Facebook. I haven't updated Facebook in five years, probably. Not really a ton. I do wonder how some of those folks are doing, but I haven't been good about keeping in touch with high school people for sure, but also college people. I think part of it is just you end up having such a kind of divergent experience compared to most of the folks, even people I went to college with. And, um, you know, you just kind of create, you keep evolving your little pocket of family in the world. So that's true. Yeah. And then from university, how did you end up at Flipboard? Or did you already plan that I was going to go to Silicon Valley and, and work there at a tech startup? So I started programming when I was about nine, eight or nine. Um, I was lucky enough, even though like there's some crazy stuff in my town, I was lucky enough to kind of be put into the, uh, you know, the quote unquote gifted program. And, um, and they had a computer. And uh, so I'm going to be 40 in a couple months. And so this is like you you know, late 80s. <laughs> Thanks. I look 65. I feel 120. <laughs> you know, this is late 80s, so computers were like Commodores and funky weird apples and stuff like that. My family couldn't in a million years afford a computer. So I think eventually we we bought like this weird Apple clone. You obviously don't remember, but there were like there was a very brief period where I think Sully was in charge and he he okayed clones. Okay. So like IBM made PCs and then they allowed people to clone. 
the IBM uh, architecture or whatever. And so Apple allowed this for a little while. You could buy these really crappy, cheap clones, and they're just horrible. I think we eventually could afford one of those. But my neighbor, who was divorced and lost his kid in the divorce, and so I think was really lonely, he had a computer. And thankfully, he wasn't a pedophile or anything. He was just a nice guy. <laughs> he, I found out he had a computer. I was like, ooh, can I use it? And I ended up going over so much and annoying him. He just gave me the key to his house. He was just like, stop knocking. Just come in and use the computer. And he bought me a phone line for the computer room. And I got online. And I started doing like BBS stuff and Prodigy. And just immediately to me, as soon as I got on the World Wide Web, which was like I had a shell account. And you had to emulate a PPP socket to run a graphical browser. This is all in like Windows 3.1 or whatever. I just remember thinking as soon as I saw the web, I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously this is this is it. Done. Okay, whatever we have to do to like focus on this, <laughs> let's do that. And I was doing a bunch of IRC, ANSI art related work. And I was one of the younger folks in, in these ANSI crews. So when I graduated high school, a bunch of these dudes, and they were all mainly dudes, had uh, graduated college and they were in like California and they were starting little design agencies in the late 90s. And so I was able to get internships through these connections I made when I was 13 because of my neighbor who was nice enough to lend me his computer and not do creepy things to me. It was a super wholesome, you know, setup. And I just, it's one of these things that makes you realize, you know, one weird little gesture, you know, one kind little gesture can have just such like a, a ripple effect in someone's life. And I actually went to go thank that guy. His name was Tom. I went to go thank him a few years ago and he had died of a heart attack. So, you know, thank people often and quickly is kind of the, you know, the takeaway there. So I ended up driving across America four times in my late teens in this little Honda Civic that didn't have, you know, power anything or it, <laughs> it was my great uncle's and he bought it and then basically passed away right after he bought it. And it was just, he got it with, I didn't even know you could buy a car with, with no yeah. power, anything and no AC, nothing. This is, it was just like, it was basically a shell of a car and we drove that across country four times. And that was amazing to be able to just see america and get these little startups in basically silicon valley to pay for that you know for driving and gas and all that crap so i already from late teens i was like okay i was doing a little web design company when i was like 15 16 in my hometown and doing 3d graphics and stuff like that and then went out to california for a couple summers and was just like this is fantastic and then when i studied abroad i kind of i, I wanted to get you know spend a year abroad somewhere i came to japan and in the middle of that studying out here the first time Silicon Valley collapsed, the first bubble pop. And so I was going to drop out of school and just go work for startups and kind of hack it away in Silicon Valley. And that happened. And I thought, well, all right, let me finish school instead. And so I ended up, it was a circuitous route. This is like early 2000s. And then I eventually, when I went to Flipboard, I was, that was in 2010. So it was like 10 years after all that happened. And basically what sort of led to that was I had worked with everyone in Tokyo that I was inspired by. I'd sort of hunted down when I was like 27, 28, 29, the people that were most inspiring to me and working on like a global scale in Tokyo. And we started collaborating and I just found I hit this kind of natural ceiling. And the next step in terms of working with, you know, even higher level people, you know, operating at a bigger scale was to go to Silicon Valley. And connection I made in my early 20s with this guy, Marcos Westcamp, he messaged me and said, hey man, I'm working at this startup. 
uh, you should come talk to the CEO. I can't tell you what it is, but I think you'd like it. And so I went out there, met with Mike McHugh and like within literally like 30 seconds, I was like, okay, I'm going to move out here and, and work with these guys. So it took a decade. That was the path. That was the destiny. <laughs> a decade later. A decade later. Oh my God. And there <laughs> you also end up meeting Dylan who then goes on to start Figma. That is insane. Oh, hell yeah. Dylan was, I think, six years old when he, <laughs> he was, he was, he was 18, maybe 19. I don't know. He was, you, I don't think he was yet 20. No, he couldn't have been. I bet he was 18 when he, he was interning at Flipboard. And with Dylan, it was just like immediately, like this guy is just, he's just a good soul, you know? And I mean, talk about lucky. That guy had kind of a charmed childhood in terms of access to amazing people, to great archetypes, you know? And I think he's a wonderful example of how emotionally intelligent you can kind of, you can prep someone with a certain amount of emotional intelligence early on. And I feel like Dylan is much older emotionally than he is obviously in temporarily or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it was just kind of amazing meeting him. You know, it was like, oh, wow, this 18 year old just has so much wisdom. <laughs> it's very, very weird. It was like, mm, who, what's going on here? But uh, so amazing to see him succeed and to see, and, and Figma truly is just killer. It's just such a killer, killer app. I love it. And then, you know, there's a couple of uh, things I'm thinking about is now that you made the connection with Dylan, you could have potentially joined them at Figma. And then you also were the recipient of that Tech Fellows scholarship where you can just invest a grant into startups. So did you think about like, hey, I met Dylan, he's going to maybe start a new company. Why don't I just take that grant and invest that in Figma? That TechFellows thing was so weird. That was like just, I don't know what happened to any of the money or the people. I have no idea what's going on. I got an email one day. It was just like, hey, you've been selected to get $100,000. I was just like, what? I mean, it's just so, it was pure Silicon Valley, like bizarreness. <laughs> you know, they handed out $6 million to just, or $2 million to a bunch of random. Anyway, it was very strange. The TechFellows money and Figma being started, I don't think happened at the same time. But full disclosure, I, I'm actually an investor in Figma. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I, I just invested my own money instead of uh, tech fellows. So I was an angel in a, and I did a pro rat on one of the seed rounds. Holy shit. Like, <laughs> that is insane. Oh, my God. That's definitely totally connected to being 15 and thinking about stocks back then. And thinking about investments, you know, as... I don't know. I just, if I have extra cash, one weird thing, I think because I grew up with not a lot of material possessions is that I am extremely suspicious of material crap. I'm very, very, very suspicious. I've always been suspicious of owning too much, having too high a baseline cost of living. Yeah. So, you know, for, I've been in, you know, in Japan essentially for 20 years. And for most of the time I've lived here, I've never paid more than like $800 a month in rent. You know, and I, my, the first five or six years that I was living here, I, you know, my yearly cost of living was essentially $15,000. That's So it. anytime, yeah, it was like for food and lodging and I wouldn't buy clothes. I don't know. I just, to me, any extra money was an opportunity to invest in the ability to have freedom later on through doing stock investments, mm -hmm. you know, saving. Yeah. And then taking that money out, or taking, you know, selling stocks at the right time, 
not at the right time, but when you yes. need it, you don't try to time the market. That's just being an Absolutely. idiot. Absolutely. But you know, it's like I have this project that I need to work on, and I have, you know, I don't know. When I was like twenty-five, I probably had about forty or fifty thousand dollars saved, you know, and in, in various stocks, and like it would pain me, but I'd be like, all right, I need a thousand bucks to do this, like yeah. this experiment or this project or make the work on this book. And I would sort of like pull from that. But, you know, so by the time I'm in my thirties and I'm in Silicon Valley, you know, doing investments like that for friends with friends yeah. or for with companies I believed in, there's also an investor, early investor in Timbuktu, mm-hmm. which did the book, good night stories for rebel girls, which is the most funded book, crowdfunded book ever. Mm-hmm. And they went on to do, you know, a couple of other books. They're all million copy bestsellers. So just, you know, and that was Elena and Francesca were just these two incredible women who were just, you met up with them and it was just obvious these women were going to be successful and they were going to work on great, impactful, meaningful projects. And because I had started building up this habit of investment from when I was like 15 and this habit of like, I made more money in one year at Flipboard, working at Flipboard than I did in basically 10 years of working up to Flipboard. Oh, wow. It was just, so it was just this like, it was like, you know, I was basically a monk coming out of a cave yeah. in India into Silicon Valley in terms yeah. of like my burn rate. And even when I moved to Palo Alto, I lived with two other guys. And okay. in 2010, Palo Alto was still sort of reasonably, again, my burn rate in Palo Alto was almost nothing. And so, I, you know, I had savings from the work. I was just socking all that money away. Yeah. And so when, you know, Elaine and Francesca or, you know, whenever these opportunities came up to support someone I totally believed in, it was like, okay, great. Instead of putting this in the public market, let's start diversifying into these private markets. And that was kind of what led to that work. And it's insane that you're also an investor in designer fund, like Ben and oh my God, these guys are so amazing. I had a chance to meet them when I was in SF and oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, Enrique was my roommate for three years. No way. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, man, I love, I love Enrique to bits, man. He's like one of my, you know, he's like a mentor. He taught me how to hug again. <laughs> like I, I moved in with Enrique and I got more hugs in like a week than I had in about a decade. Oh my God. And I was just like, oh, this is what I've been missing in life. Hugs. Damn. Super amazing, beautiful bro hugs. <laughs> oh, they're so good. And then hummus. All we ate was hummus. Our entire refrigerator was just full of hummus. It was so, it was such a weird three years, man. We cranked like crazy. That was one of the most beautiful, like love filled, mm-hmm. you know, work filled, you know, let's be better. How do we make each other better wow. periods of life? Life changing, going and moving to Palo Alto and living with those guys. Absolutely. Just incredible. It was, it was Enrique Allen and Ben Henretic was the other guy. Yeah. And Ben is this amazing filmmaker and he was just cranking away too. And Enrique and I were, you know, basically brainstorming designer fund. Mm-hmm you know, in the kitchen nightly, you know, I'd come back from Flipboard and we just like riff on stuff. So when, you know, again, when I saw he was going to, he was going to do that, I was totally behind it. They actually made a very generous offer for me to join as a partner. Yeah. But this is right when I was trying to figure out, you know, what my next steps were. And I wanted to just focus on writing mm-hmm. and i wanted to focus on you know a lot of the stuff that i'm doing now and so i said no which is kind of crazy i found their offer letter the other day in dropbox paper it was like <laughs> it's the only document in drop and uh, i was looking at it, i was just like jesus man like this is so generous but i had this very clear pull of what i wanted to be doing and i knew that i couldn't do that if i joined somewhere full-time and so i tried to be 
I said, look, you know, I want to be involved as much as I can mm-hmm. and support you guys as much as I can. And please, you know, use me in any way you yeah. want, but I can't do a full-time thing. Wow. So what does your day look like? Do you have like a structured day? Cause I mean, you're doing so many things. I mean, doing your writing, you have all these like angel investments, you're a mentor to startups. So is there like a process? Well, the, so, so the investing stuff, I really have cut back on like almost completely. Okay. So I was most active as like a angel investor, like 2010, 11, 12, 13, mm-hmm. 14, basically. And then a big part of what was attractive about designer fund was becoming a limited partner there. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, you know, most of investing is about deal flow and about connections. And so because I'm not in Silicon Valley, you know, sponsored by San Pellegrino, (laughs) lots of (laughs) drinking carbonated water and doing these, doing podcasts is probably not a good idea. So, you know, if you're not in Silicon Valley, meeting people and connecting with people and then angel investing just doesn't make sense. And I just found it to be, it was kind of interesting, but not sort of a lot of work you end up losing uh you know quite a bit of money you have to be you know willing to watch stuff kind of oh. you know money evaporate and so designer fund for me is sort of my proxy my investing I proxy see. and i trust them with the deal flow and then you know i can chime in and you know i can help i can direct if i meet a company mm-hmm. which is where more rare these days if i meet someone who's doing a company and looking for funding i can push them in the direction of the designer fund and say hey you know talk with enrique and ben you know see what they have to say so I don't do really any active investing, private investing at all anymore. So that has like almost no play, you know, maybe 10 minutes out of the year I spend on that. But otherwise, my daily schedule is really contingent on the projects that I'm working on in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so for the last couple of months, it's been book design, yeah. production, editing, you know, essentially setting up a publishing machine. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say publishing company because it's just sort of my own work. Yeah. So, it's, but it's like this machine I'm trying to set up with fulfillment, mm-hmm. shipping, logistics, all that stuff baked into it, you know, and also building that Craigstarter thing, that Kickstarter clone on Shopify. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do I build this system that once it's running, I can step away from and focus on what I want to focus on, which is the storytelling, yeah. the book creation, which to me is everything. Putting out those archetypes, you know, working on those stories inspiring people through that work to me is, you know, the whole reason you build this other system behind Mm -hmm. it, enable even more of that to happen on my own terms without having to go through traditional publishing channels, which, um, you know, has its ups and downs. But, you know, I've been making books now for 18 years and, you know, I think I can do a pretty good job at it. So I feel I'm pretty confident about that. And if I can do it on my own terms, I don't know. I just feel like there's a little more room to experiment and maybe a little more um, value in some ways through doing that. And Mm -hmm. it puts a stake in the ground for other folks who may be thinking about doing similar independent publishing work and allows them to kind of look at this and go, okay, that allows us to be an archetype. People can look at it and go, oh, that's how you do that. Okay, let me try that now. Because that's really what, you know, we're just, you know, essentially mimics. We're like chimpanzee mimics, essentially. And it's like, unless you see someone doing something, it's hard to imagine yourself doing it. And so that's why, you know, I try to write these breakdowns. I try to explain how does a membership program work? How does the newsletter s- system work? You know, how do you use all these things to enable a kind of freedom and a sort of work that you're excited by? Yeah. And I think, you know, if more people can do that, then that's just a, a total net positive for the world. And so, you know, just constantly trying to explain <laughs> that, and pr- provide that archetype. This is how you do it. Copy me, please. You're the perfect archetype for newsletter subscription and just growing 
one's uh, business or passion through that. I remember reading a lot of your blogs on it, like how the whole newsletter stuff works, how to create a good one, the membership model. And I'm kind of curious, like, when did you actually get the idea that, hey, you know, I should have my own newsletter. Now, obviously, it's at like 17,000 plus subscribers, but at one point it was zero. So walk me through that journey from like zero to like where it's now. I started the first newsletter, wrote in in like 2011, maybe end of 2011, mm-hmm. beginning of 2012. And that was because I wrote this essay called Subcompact Publishing that got picked up all over the place. And I wanted to capture that attention. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, the way I was capturing it was like basically, if you read an essay of mine, mm-hmm. the takeaway was sort of follow me on Twitter. Yeah. And I think I was just getting a little bit sick of Twitter. And I think Tiny Letter might have popped up then and was kind of, you know, mm-hmm. getting some play and newsletters were just back on the radar. And so I set up a newsletter and it just, you know, instantly had a couple thousand subscribers. Wow. But I didn't take it seriously. I didn't, you know, those newsletters, I was like, because at that point too, I was still, I was in this like performative literary mode where I was like, okay, I'm going to sort of renounce everything tech related. Yeah. I'm going to go into these literary caves and I'm only going to write fiction uh-huh. and blah, blah. But it was, you know, that was an important sort of, you know, exploratory modality for me. Mm-hmm. And so the early road newsletters were like, ooh, you know, this is going to be a newsletter, but it's going to be really special. <laughs> and anyway, there was no schedule and they were weird and I, I didn't have enough rigor of process behind them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the start of 2019 that I set up a schedule. And so, you know, 18 months ago oh. is when I said, all right, this is how it's going to go. You know, Ridgeline is weekly, new newsletter, mm-hmm. Roden is monthly. And I'm going to stick to that. And, um, you know, my advice for anyone doing newsletters, two things. One is have a schedule mm-hmm. because you're often not going to want to You feel like you quote unquote feel inspired. Yeah. But, you know, 99% of writing is just getting your butt in the chair, mm-hmm. turning off distractions and just forcing yourself to write a few sentences. And then, you know, more often than not, there's a lot more there. So it's like, it's silly, you know. And so you got you have to just treat it like a job and have deadlines. Another thing, too, is to think about it in terms of seasons. Yeah. So I think a lot of people can be overwhelmed if they say, oh, all right, I'm going to start a newsletter. I'm going to do it weekly. Yeah. And I've got to do this forever. <laughs> you know, that's what freezes people. It's like, you you got to do it forever. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then you do like five of them. And you're like, I can't do this forever. So think about it in terms of seasons and, and say, look, season one of this newsletter is going to be for like two months. Mm-hmm. And you just got to do it for two months. Okay. And then you can decide if you want to do season two or whatever. And I, I find that, that that's like a technique for freeing up this kind of cognitive stress or worry about, you know, oh man, what have I committed to? Well, you don't have to commit to that much. So I would say that by the time you in 2019, you became diligent about focusing on the newsletter, you already had a huge following on Twitter. I mean, now it's insane too, 30,000 plus, but I mean, assuming 2019, it was also like quite high. So that probably helped, I'm assuming, get a lot of people to sign up for the newsletter from your tweets what I want your advice on would be, so I've got Design and Beat out show the podcast pretty much. And then my next step is kind of launching my own blog, Design and Beat out blog, where I want to share some stories and kind of like build an email newsletter. And I know it sounds very typical, like, hey, you build an email newsletter and then later if you have a product, you can sell it. So what advice would you have for me in terms of starting off when I don't have a huge following like you for the blog, I guess I would say? Yeah, well, I mean, when I started, you know, writing blogs, it was less blog-ish and more, you know, kind of designed essays that I would spend a couple months on some of these essays, you know, and that was in 2009. I started really writing Mm -hmm. these big, these kind of 
chunky essays yeah. for the web where I'd think of them as, you know, both literarily, design-wise, photographically, and kind of do these almost like these big, you know, kind of like, it was almost like product announcements for these essays. And those did really well, you know, and that's kind of what started a lot, you know, any kind of following I have right now. Oh, so it was you the know, other way around, in, it seems. It was essays. You got to, you know, I found that, you know, in 2009, I had, I don't know, probably a thousand followers on Twitter or something like oh. that. You know, I started doing these big essays and committing to them and, you mm -hmm. know, really spending like a month or two on one of these essays and then just really banging the drum when I put them out there, you know, so like reaching out to people, putting it on, on people's radar that I respected. Yeah. You know, one a piece of advice I give to folks uh, often is, you know, when if you want to connect with interesting people in mm -hmm. the world, you have to bring something concrete to the table. So like one of the reasons I said yes to this podcast mm -hmm. is because you didn't just email me which a lot of people do and they're just like, hey, I have this podcast, yeah. it'd be great. Da, da. You know, it's like, okay. But you produced something, you made something. Mm -hmm. And like, so few people make things, you know? And so you put that on the table. You said, look, man, I made this video. I'm going to fucking tell you exactly <laughs> what I want, you know, what we're going to talk about. I'm going like, to prove to you that I didn't just yeah. read, you know, half of one of your essays <laughs> and, you know, and because and, I just want to fill up my, you know, my roster <laughs> of, of podcast people. And so, you know, you can do the same thing with your own work. So like when I would finish a big essay, yeah. I would look to everyone in that field and it's, you know, that I respected and looked up to and I'd email them and say, hey, and not like a big, crazy, weird email, but yeah. just be like, hey, look, your work has been a, a big inspiration yeah. to me. And that inspiration has kind of fueled my ability to produce this thing. I want to show you, I want to share that with mm -hmm. you. And then, you know, not asking questions, not being like, hey, man, can we do a Zoom or, you know, Skype back then? You know, can, let's get coffee, you know, none of that. But just saying like, hey, man, I respect your work. Your work has inspired me. This is what I've yeah. made. And then, you know, more often than not, if you've made something, you know, interesting, yeah. not, you know, it has to be, don't be a bullshitter. Don't like spend, you know, two hours on something and be like, hey, man, this really inspired Like, no, like really <laughs> put the work in. And, um, you know, more often than that, people will respond to that because it's so rare yeah. for someone to bring something concrete to the table. So like I would, you know, work on these essays, put them out there and then just email everyone that I, I yeah. was inspired by and loved, you know, and they would, you know, write about it or tweet it or whatever. And that helped that just kind of expanded the circle. And then that increased the Twitter followers and blah, 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 all that crap. And then, yeah, of course, when starting a newsletter, if you have a following on a certain social media platform, you know, that's a great, seed mm -hmm. i actually have you know i'm not very good at growing my newsletter i'm not like a super strong promoter of it this is probably something i should like return mm -hmm. to maybe at the end of the year thinking about ways to grow that audience but i really like the scale i'm at i mean this is another question i think that's really important for people to ask mm -hmm. themselves is like what scale inspires you what are you inspired by like what scale do you want to operate at you know and at Flipboard, we launched, you know, I worked hard on this product, you know, we, you know we're all-nighters, yeah. we're going to launch this crazy thing. And I'm working with the best people, mm -hmm. at, you know, the most talented, smartest, kindest people I'd ever met. And we put this product out and, you know, instantly overnight, it's like millions of new users yeah. and like, oh my God, 80 million users now yeah. on the platform. Blah. And I just, I realized one of the reasons I left was I was like, that does not inspire me. That scale is totally unimportant to me. Oh. I just am not... Like, this is why, like, you know, working at Google or working at yeah. Facebook to me is just not interesting. It's like, I don't care about that, like, billion user scale. I see. I just don't. I like the intimacy of, like, 10,000 and fewer. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is why, you know, a lot of the books I do are, like, a 1,000 copies, you know, working up from there. 
I find that is the scale for me that allows me to tell a certain kind of story, a human story. As soon as you start doing work for, you know, tens of millions or billions of people, mm -hmm. there's a kind of dilution that has to happen implicitly because the scale is so big. Yeah. And so you lose, obviously you lose intimacy, but through losing that intimacy, you lose the ability to tell a certain kind of story. So right now, my newsletters or whatever, I'm, I just feel pretty good. You know, it's the membership program is going well and it's like, you know, it's growing and at a rate I'm, I'm happy with. And, you know, it's enabling all sorts of really interesting work. So right now, that scale, I don't feel like I have yeah. to do work to pump it up, you know? And I think, so that what that just means is I can take that energy I would normally use for like more like pump up promotion-y stuff. I don't even know what that yeah. looks like. And I can just pour it into, you know, the books, mm -hmm. you know, and now I'm starting to do some video stuff and, you know, thinking about that. And so pour it into this creative work, which is where I want the majority of my energy to go. I don't want to get sidetracked or distracted by these other kind of growth hacks or, or things like that. That's not interesting to me. That is so deep. You're essentially staying small on purpose. <laughs> I mean, there's just something about you. I mean, I could go on the whole length about it. Maybe it's, I've also attended Vipassana in Texas last year. So I also feel like to everything you say, there's like this deep thought out process. Like it takes balls, man, to just, I would say, walk away from being a partner or go away from private investing full time, even though there might be potential for more money, but to focus on what you're doing and staying small on purpose. Because even I get delusion. I'm like, oh my God, I got to like launch this newsletter. And I just like, in terms of tech stack, I just got like a ghost, like set up on DigitalOcean. Like that's what I'm doing to do the blog. And then essentially my thought is like, okay, well, Craig has got this many like, followers or he's got like this many like subscriptions and this membership program i gotta do it too and then i'm like damn dude you haven't like produced that value that's gonna bring that people i think with you you create these pieces whether it's your in your newly successful book that launched hundred thousand dollars a kissa by kissa i think what i'm learning from you is and maybe this is just like a self like i'm just walking myself through it is i maybe just need to focus on creating those essays like you said and writing those pieces and just create a blog share that and if people like it, they will resonate and then come to it instead of me trying to like growth hack this newsletter. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people feel whether or not something is genuine. I think they intuitively understand that. Let me take a second to talk about walking away from stuff because I think that is an important mm -hmm. point. And it's easy to talk about, but it's difficult to kind of understand the psychology there. So a couple of things. One, being able to walk away from stuff requires a, a certain amount of financial autonomy okay. and a lack of debt. And so, you know, my advice to basically late teens, early 20s, people or folks going to college is to focus on if they want to be, you know, an artist or writer or work in a field that historically does not pay extreme amounts of money is you don't need to go to $40,000 a year university. Mm -hmm. Like, don't take that debt on. Just don't do it. You know, I was lucky enough when I was going to school, it wasn't that mm -hmm. crazy expensive. I was able to get scholarships. My mom, for whatever insane reason, started saving for her unborn child's college when she was 20. I have no idea why, yeah. why she started doing this. So when my mom started socking money away when she was 20, adopted me when she was like 28. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she had put away enough money where I was really lucky not to have to take on debt. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this kind of combination of things that, you know, I'm working in the background, scholarships mm -hmm. and cost of school not being that crazy. So like that's really important to recognize is like that kind of um, 
not entitlement, but, you know, but being in an extremely privileged position Mm -hmm. of not having a hundred thousand dollars of debt sitting on your shoulders right when you graduate. So that I intuitively recognized that. And then I did not want to take on anything that took away the freedom of that no debt. So that's why I was, you know, how do I keep cost of living low? How do I, you know, living in super tiny places to just, everything is for focusing on the creative work Mm -hmm. that I felt in my gut. I remember, you know, when I was 19, I, I had an internship that was paying really well mm-hmm. out in Silicon Valley at this company called Electronics for Imaging, mm-hmm. like a printer company. They still make, I think, printer software. And they basically said to me at the end of the summer, say, hey, we'll cover the rest of school for you. Come work for us full time, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. And I just knew after having spent the summer there that there, like, it was not of my destiny oh. to work in a company. Just like, I respected the people I worked with. I found the work mm-hmm. pretty interesting, but I felt the pull. I knew there was other work I wanted mm-hmm. to do, and I knew that it did not happen inside of the walls of an office. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I just remember saying to them on the exit interview, like, "This is when I was 19. Thank you so much, but I have to go do this other stuff." Oh, wow. You know, and then moved to Japan, and then actually Japan was a further hack to keeping costs low because school in Japan was even cheaper than school in America. Mm-hmm. So I was able to study out here at a fraction of the cost and get scholarships. And so, you know, again, 10 years later when, you know, it's, I'm at Flipboard mm-hmm. and I'm leaving Flipboard after 15 months, mm-hmm. which was crazy. I was one of the first people to, to quit the company. And like at that point it was like the rocket ship was just yeah. going and, you know, it was like, we, you know, every month I would get, I would just get you know, an extra, I don't know, $10,000 or something in, in the bank. <laughs> it was just like more, it was, it was weird. They just kept giving me bonuses oh. without telling me I was, you know, that's just how it's looking. And I was just like, what is going on? And, you know, walking away from that was really weird and tough. Yeah. I was, you know, Ev Williams wanted really badly to hire me at Medium, yeah. right when Medium had launched. And I walked away from that, oh you God. know, and, but, <laughs> but I'm not saying that to like brag, to be yeah. like, Hey man, all these people want to hire me. I'm saying that because I, you know, I had real crazy opportunities yeah. that I, w- I said no to, not because I was like, not because I was afraid of the opportunities, mm-hmm. but because I had such a strong pull to this other thing, yeah. right? Life is so, so short, so mm-hmm. short. And I felt in my gut, I had to do these other things. I just had to do them. And I knew I just came from the cave in India. I was living in, I was just living in a cave in India. I don't need to make $300,000 a year. I don't need to make, you know, the metaphorical cave. You know, I don't need to buy fancy watches. I don't need Maseratis. I don't need any of this crap. I don't need to do private jet shit. None of that defines who I am at all. Zero, 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 zero. You know, and the most expensive thing I ever bought in my life was a few years ago when I bought that Leica Q. And it was such outside of, I bought a car when I was living in California and then sold it on the way out. But like that queue, I bought that queue and it was like 5,000 or $6,000. And I had a panic attack when I was buying it because to me it was like so dissonant from like my identity yeah. of who I was to own something that was like kind of luxurious or whatever. So the ability to say no or step away from these opportunities required two things. One, building up this incredible habit of not defining myself based on material yeah. things, right? Which I'd started in my early 20s and which really started when I was, you know, a, a kid because my mm-hmm. we had nothing material really in our house. We had, you know, mm-hmm. the, I had no concept of brand name stuff. You know, we'd go to Kmart, you know, for uh, back to school stuff. And I remember, yeah, I just remember, I, you know, I'd wear the same shirt to school like four, yeah. four days in a row because I only <laughs> had like two shirts I like. You know, like 
that is such a powerful habit that is almost impossible to build up in your 30s or yeah. 40s because you've already you know inured yourself to a certain amount of material yeah. you know and so something I, I i tell people you know constantly who are in college who are about to graduate keep that recurring costs low like just wow. do not go for the expensive apartment you know don't get addicted to buying a bunch of clothes don't and all buy that the crap. get addicted don't buy the beamer <laughs> get addicted to savings get it you know buy a weird suzuki yeah. you can get these amazing suzukis for like you know for like ten thousand dollars if you need a car get a suzuki a jimny a jimny's so cool man it's like the g-wagon it's like a mini g-wagon <laughs> for like one twentieth the price it's awesome i love them uh it's really really fantastic but build up that habit if you want to do a certain kind of work. Yeah. That's important. If you want to work at startups and like just crank on companies, man, yeah. go for it. That's great. That was not my destiny. Yeah. I did not feel that in my heart. You know, in effect, that was part of going out to Silicon Valley was to stress that, yeah. to try that out. What does it really feel like? I thought mm -hmm. that was part of my destiny. And I think I could have continued down that path and it would have been financially extremely mm -hmm. successful. That's for, for sure. But I also knew that I, you know, a lot of money, what, you know, wasn't going to change what I felt in my heart in terms of the work that I wanted to be, that I really wanted to be focusing on. So being able to walk away from those things required that, you know, decades of habit building. Yeah. And then on top of that, it required a clear sense of what I wanted to work on. Yeah. You know, you can't have this amorphous idea of like, oh man, I'm going to be like an artist yeah. or a writer. It's like, I was like, I'm writing this book. I have this book to write. I'm yeah. going to keep writing this book. That was what I'm going to work on. And so you need to have both of those things, I think, to be able to say no to superficially, mm -hmm. you know, incredible opportunity. Because what you're really saying yes to in these situations yeah. is a kind of spiritual opportunity, <laughs> you know, which is like much harder to quantify. It's so hard to quantify spiritual crap. Yeah. It's like I was saying yes. I was saying no to mega paycheck and working on like big platforms or whatever. But I was saying yes to a certain kind of exploratory freedom that to me defined in a lot of ways in terms of what I feel like I can do with life and with you know being alive. It defined for me the best way to respect being alive. That's how it felt to me. It's like there was like this deep philosophical, almost like spiritual component to yeah. it. Where it was like being alive is a special thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's important to recognize that. Mm -hmm. So not just like take that for granted. Life is extremely short. Mm -hmm. We're essentially dead instantly. And, um, you know, at the end, when you look back on it, for me, there's just like three or four things that like I still need to do that, you know, I'm working on mm -hmm. that I want to, that's important for me to get done. Anyway, it was a combination of all yeah. that, you know, building up this habit of low material, mm -hmm. you know, needs to self-identify with, you know, building up this other habit of committing to creative work and understanding creative work building up the habit of following the this internal mm -hmm. compass you know and then you know being financially smart you know over the years and kind of understanding how to save and build up a cushion all that's critical to being able to say to say no when someone comes to you yeah. with a big sort of check or something i think that was much needed to me so i quit my job at at in june and you know it was hard man i was making i mean i'm in dallas texas so obviously it's a little bit cheaper than san francisco and I was making $120,000 a year. Um, I'm 29. It's amazing. And uh, amazing. I've got a financial advisor, like the guy who's doing like the investing for me and stuff. And so that stuff, like definitely like, I feel just like you gave me a little bit of impetus. Like, hey, you know what? If I want to do the podcast, if I want to like explore that area, I can do it. And if worse comes worse, you know, like in Jan, I can always, or Feb or whatever, next year, I can try to go back and just try to get a full-time job. But I need to 
really like go full throttle on this before I just say yes to other commitments. And yeah. I guess one advice I want to ask from you is you're a phenomenal writer. I guess I wanted your advice on how do I become a better writer? Is it like books that I read or is it just drafts that I keep on practicing, get other people to review? Like how did you become a better writer or what was your journey like? Yeah, all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, writing has always been important mm -hmm. to me. So when I was a teenager, I actually started building blog software when I was like 17, 16, 17, 18, <laughs> like proto blogging software. Like there's, so this is like a, a good example of like being exposed to the right people at the right yeah. time. Like I just didn't have people around me that knew how to build businesses yeah. or, or work on things like that. And so, but if I had, I could have imagined, you know, Blogger was right there. I was, yeah. I was essentially building Blogger because writing was so important to me and I wanted better platforms to write on on the web because there really weren't any. And so writing has always, always, always been exciting to me. And being a novelist has always mm -hmm. been like something that, you know, was an appealing idea to mm -hmm. me. You know, in college, I was doing writing workshops mm -hmm. and, you know, that was, a, I get reading a ton. Mm -hmm. But I would say, you know, just fundamentally to be a better writer, you need to develop your ear. Yeah. So that that's reading. So you got to read the right people and you got to read them closely. Mm -hmm. Read, read, read and try to understand what's happening, at, you know, in the work as you're reading it and try to mimic, you know, mimicry. I think, like I was saying earlier, is a powerful way to understand how something happens. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, just more than anything, it's doing a lot of writing, just tons of it and rewriting, tons of rewriting. You know, that's, it's just a skill. Mm -hmm. It's, that's all it is. I mean, you can improve your ear mm -hmm. to a degree, but part of that is sort of implicit, but you can definitely make your ear better. So you can mm -hmm. hear, you know, you can kind of hear clunkier prose or, or whatever, just by reading more, you just read, 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 constantly read, you know, I, and I'm extremely strict about if I start a book and the voice is not a voice that I want to have part of yeah. my foundation as a writer, if I don't want to have this voice, if I'm, if I'm not interested in it. Yeah. If it doesn't it hit me in the right way, I stop reading it immediately. I drop books really fast. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I tend to focus on and reread a lot of the same books. So like people like Annie Dillard, for example, Annie Dillard, if you're looking to write interesting essays mm -hmm. and you want to be inspired about form mm -hmm. and you want to go, you know, you want to kind of think about how far can I push yeah. an essay? What, you know, what can it look like? Mm -hmm. Pick up Annie Dillard essay collection. Okay. And she is just operating at such a wonderful level and she provides such a strong archetype for this is how you can do this in the world it's crazy i just reread dennis johnson's train dreams this morning so you know part of like my schedule you asked mm -hmm. about schedule earlier is that i try to not touch the internet until like afternoon oh. and so when i wake up and i'm on crazy schedule now it's not great i'm waking up i'm going to bed really late because i'm doing these calls late at night and all the covid stuff has kind of made you know just a bunch of weird zoom stuff happening yeah. you know in the, in the middle of the night over here so i wake up and i am not allowed to do any internet crap mm -hmm. you know look at the phone look at anything because i find instantly that pulls my brain out of this kind of quiet it activates this kind of messiness yeah. in the brain which i find is not in any way conducive to good writing and so if I don't feel like writing, mm -hmm. which is almost every day, I don't feel like writing. It's like, you know, runners, you talk to runners mm -hmm. and like most of them don't ever feel like running when they wake up in the morning. But if I don't feel like writing, what I'm allowed, the only thing I'm allowed to do is read. Oh. And so I read. And then often what happens is I'll start reading in about half an hour to reading. I'll be, if I'm reading the right stuff, mm -hmm. I'll be so inspired 
by a sentence, it'll just kick something mm-hmm. off in the brain. It's like kindling, yeah. you know, and it just starts chain reaction. And then I have to go whoosh, you run yeah. and start working and start writing. And I've basically turned my iPad into a writing machine where I've blocked the internet yeah. on it. I've deleted everything on it that's distracting. And it's just this kind of overpriced writing, <laughs> you know, writing tablet, essentially. And so that's, I find that also to be useful. So you can't, even just the existence of a temptation on a, on a device mm-hmm. for me just pulls the brain out of this kind of contemplative yeah. writing space. And, you know, because what's happening when you're writing is you're problem solving mm-hmm. a lot of times. The impulse I think a lot of us have when we encounter a problem or encounter a bit of friction in life mm-hmm. anywhere is to reach for the internet, yes. pick up the phone. And so when you're writing, if you, and because you're problem solving, you're going to inevitably hit a bunch of problems. And if you have anything nearby that lets you swerve or, or ignore the problem, game over. You're not going to solve it in an interesting way. So the best way to solve a problem if you're really mm-hmm. stuck is to go for a walk. Ah. But there's something about the distraction of the internet is not allowing for background processes to happen. Mm-hmm. So that background problem solving does not happen mm-hmm. if you're looking at crap on the internet. If you're binging, yeah. or, there's something chemical, at least for me, there's something chemical about it. It's, I don't know if it's dopamine rush or yeah. what, but it's almost like a casino just starts up in the head mm-hmm. and I lose all ability to sort of exist gracefully. I lose grace in my being. So anyway, that, that's how I think about the schedules. And, that, and, and you know, that's, mm-hmm. you need to build up that habit. And you're, if you do that, if you read good writers mm-hmm. and uh, read Bird by Bird. Yes. Uh, yeah Anne lamott great book you know read books read books read steve king's on writing it's a great book too you know just fill your brain with good writing and set a schedule and and force yourself to write more you know just treat it like a job you'll get better wow oh man this is so like inspiring it's like anything moment oh my god so how do people get in touch with you how do people follow you how do people contact you yeah, I mean, subscribing to the newsletters is probably the best thing. Okay. Subscribe to the newsletters, join the membership program, give me money. And um, how do they find support, the membership program? Support my uh, pseudo-monastic life. It's craigmaud.com slash membership. Okay. And it's called Special Projects. That's the name of the membership program. But yeah, the newsletters are the best thing. The reason why I like newsletters, you own the newsletter. Mm-hmm. You own those email addresses in the sense of you can bring them with you if you need to switch email providers. A newsletter, you know, the email space for the most part is fairly static. Mm -hmm. If you, I've seen writers, for example, commit to Facebook Mm -hmm. and, you know, Facebook is this ever evolving, you know, horrible demon organism Mm -hmm. monster thing. You never know what it's going to look like six months from now. So you may be investing in and committing to this platform in one form. And then in six months, it's a different form. And it's not a form that you work well with. So I treat, you know, Twitter and Instagram as ephemeral and I assume they're going to be gone Mm -hmm. and I assume they're going to disappear. And I base, again, it's this thing of like investing. There's this recurring theme going on. How do I future proof my ability to keep doing this work? If I am completely dependent on like, say, Instagram, there could be a day. Yes. Instagram doesn't work anymore. True. And so then I'm, you know, I'm out of luck. And so email and the newsletters to me feel the most durable of all the platforms and the most likely to be around in say 20 years. And so that feels worth, you know, the investment. How much can one expect to make if at some point they were to reach maybe 17,000 subscribers or 20,000 subscribers and just. 
you know, how much money you can make on the newsletter stuff is totally contingent on what you're writing about. You know, it's like, it's all specific to the value you're providing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Ben Thompson was making millions, you know, almost immediately because, you know, that value of here is actionable inside, Mm -hmm. you know, high quality analysis of tech Mm -hmm. stuff. Like, yeah, I'll give you, what is it? A hundred, hundred dollars a year or whatever it was. It was like fairly cheap when he started. It was like, I'll pay you a hundred dollars a year because I know that that is going to turn directly into, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit for me because I'll make investments based on, you know, what I'm reading in here. And so I think like newsletters that are finance related and fun Mm -hmm. are probably the easiest to make money off of. Stuff like mine, you know, which is, I don't even know how to categorize what I do. I mean, it's almost like performance art in some ways you know, you're not going to make, you're definitely not going to make as much money. So don't live in San Francisco in a $5,000 a month apartment and do a newsletter about walking. If you, uh, if that's your business plan, you will be sad, uh, very quickly. You will go broke extremely fast. You know, my cost of living again, living in Japan, cost of living is extremely controlled, you know, and also healthcare, Mm -hmm. you know, this is something that I think Americans, independent American creators have to contend with, which is just, the stupidity of the health system there, you know, and the costs it can be so high. And here in Japan, thankfully, we operate on a fairly rational, you know, socialist-esque healthcare mm-hmm. system. So, you know, that is non-trivial. You know, moving to a country that takes away that huge chunk of worry if, heaven forbid, some kind of health crisis yeah. befalls you, you know, that's an incredibly powerful, again, investment in yourself to enable a certain kind of freedom going forward. I think that's important. You can be overly obsessive about, you know, being defensive and building up defenses to protect freedoms. And so you do have to take some risks, you know, and you have to say, okay, I'm going to sell a little bit of this. I'm going to take some of the savings out and put it into this project. But there's a certain habit of, you know, I'm shocked by the number of grown ass (laughs) humans I know that have never, that don't have a brokerage account. That's crazy (laughs) to me. It's totally crazy. It's completely bonkers. I'm just like, you know, to me, that mode of savings is so intrinsic mm-hmm. because I, w- I was lucky enough to do that stock investing club in high school yeah. that, uh, you know, I can't imagine that not being part of, you know, the portfolio of things I'm doing to enable, you know, work going forward. Yeah. But you can overdo it too. It's fair. But definitely email is a, e- a good platform to invest in. Thank you so much, Craig, for coming on the show, man. It's been a blast. Like I had such a blast learning from you. I got the final much needed motivation to walk away from superficial things, even though they sound good on paper, but thanks so much, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, nice things are important when they're tools. I think, you know, everything that I spend money on for the most part is a tool Mm -hmm. and investing in good tools is a great investment often because you can sell them for almost what you bought them for. If it turns out that you aren't, you aren't going to use that tool, you know? And so it's, I'm not like this mic is an expensive mic, you know, and it's plugged into this expensive USB interface and blah, blah, blah. But you know, these are all tools that I'm trying and committing to. That's also the interesting thing. Sometimes there's this fallacy. You can spend money on a tool and then not use it or, you know, just um, don't buy the Leica. (laughs) uh, If you think it's going to make you a great photographer, but there is, you know, if you're already committed to photography and then, you know, buying the Leica, if that sort of is a weird kick to, you know, further mm-hmm. push you to do even more work, but you already have to have that habit built up of doing a lot of work. Yeah. 
then go for it, you know, and think about it from a business perspective. Think about it. Okay, well, if I buy this camera and I have this following and I start selling prints, mm -hmm. then how much can I make on the prints and da da da? So, like for example, with the Kisa by Kisa book, yeah. I sold prints along with mm -hmm. it. I did. What did I do? I did a edition of I think thirty, and I sold the prints for like two hundred bucks. Yeah. So that's six thousand yeah. dollars right there, right? And we sold all the prints. So that's six thousand dollars. That's like directly I can draw a line between that six thousand dollars and my photographic tools. Wow. And you go, okay, that's interesting. And so I was thinking about buying, investing in a printer because mm -hmm. I was like, man, you know, I'd like to do more of these things. But this time I worked with a printer in Tokyo, and so the upfront cost was bigger. Mm -hmm. But it's like now that I know there is this interest. Mm -hmm. That gives me the permission to now go invest, spend the money in a high quality tool mm -hmm. because I can see the business, the sustainability around it. It's not just buying the tool to fetishize the tool. It's it's buying it with a specific purpose and you buy the good one because, you know, you're going to continue to use it. And uh, the good one often in the end is cheaper in some ways because, it you know, it's more durable, it lasts longer, things like that. But generally, you know, the important thing is recurring costs. That's the real material thing, you know auto loans, mortgages, yes. you know, rents, eating out at super fancy restaurants too much, you know, buying super fancy groceries too often. <laughs> like those are the things that over time basically are the difference between massive, massive spiritual freedoms in terms of, you know, exploring the world and feeling like you have that, you have the, the ability to explore it because you're not trying to constantly bring in enough to cover that fixed mm -hmm. cost. So it's the difference between that and going, okay, I got to hustle another consulting gig. Yeah because you know i've got to hit these costs like in my 20s i would i could do one essentially i could do a month of consulting and that would cover a year of living that was kind of my that was the Holy ratio shit. that's a good ratio <laughs> it's an insane ratio frank well you know and that was just because i was choosing to live in tokyo and i was making choices about the places i lived in and you know frank camaro the designer he has I, he, one of his essays is about like he had this like chart that he would hold you would put up mm -hmm. on on the wall and it would be like days of work to freedom oh and you know he'd, he'd map out how, ma how many more freelance days he had to do until he could be done for the year and work on his own project but you know it's important to understand where those lines are and you can control those lines by controlling fixed costs absolutely thank you so much if you made it this far you are what i call a design mba super fan and i've got a gift for you my super fan head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.